Isaiah chapter 2, reading uh, from verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, to chapter 47, verse 15. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. 
It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things, that, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence, and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Our Father in heaven, you who sent the light of the world into our darkness, we pray this evening you would enlighten our hearts, help us to hear your voice, 
Help me to say what you say and help us all to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're talking about Babylon. If you look at chapter 47, verse 1, that's kind of obvious. Page 607, if you've closed your Bibles, it will help to have them open. Page 607, chapter 47, verse 1 of Isaiah. Come and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Clearly that's what 47 is about, chapter 47. Actually, chapter 46 is about that too. So verse 1 there. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Bel and Nebo are two of the big Babylonian gods. Incidentally, here's a, here's a um, quiz trivia you probably will never need to know. Um, you know in Daniel when the kings are named things like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar? Well, now you know what they're named after. They're gods. Bel, Nebo. So all of these chapters, 46 and 47, are all about Babylon. The gods of Babylon, 46, and Babylon itself, 47. Tonight we're considering the fall of Babylon and her gods. But if you just wandered into church for the first time tonight, I mean, I wonder if you're thinking, what on earth have I come to? And what has that, the fall of Babylon, ages ago, got, got to do with modern life in Edinburgh? After all, here we are, we're reading a book by Isaiah, who's a prophet writing 700 years or so before Jesus. And he's teaching about what's going to happen a couple of centuries ahead of him. And so Babylon is conquered by Cyrus in 540 BC. So this is pretty ancient history. In fact, if you want to find Babylon and her gods now, well, you need to go to the British Museum. It's room 55. Although actually as we'll see by the end, that is exactly the point. We need to understand what happened to Babylon because she's an object lesson. This particular historical event, it illustrates some general principles, something that's as relevant today as it was back then. So let's get our historical bearings and then I'll tell you why it's relevant. Um, Remember, if you've been around here on Sunday evenings, you'll know throughout this series we've been saying that Isaiah is looking ahead to the time when God's people, Judah, have been exiled, taken out of their country, into Babylon. And obviously, once they're in exile, there'll be all sorts of questions coming into their minds. Has God given up on us? Was God real? Can God rescue us? Will he ever get us back to the place he promised, this glorious new Jerusalem? And repeatedly, through these chapters in the 40s, we've been seeing God is committed to getting them back. Last week, at the start of chapter 45, verse 1, he predicted he'd use this guy called Cyrus, turned out to be the king of Persia, to conquer Babylon and rescue his people. So all of this stuff is a rescue mission, that is, it's an, it's an object lesson, or if you like, a case study, a test case, of can the God of the Bible actually deliver? He makes a lot of promises about saving people. Can he actually? Does he follow through in human history? Or are all these things we sing about just pie in the sky until you die, and then you're disappointed? 
So that's the first kind of object lesson. The first reason to know about Babylon, actually, is to learn how God does prove in space-time history that he's a God who doesn't just promise salvation, but delivers it. And we've seen lots of that over recent weeks. But tonight, there's a different reason we need to know about Babylon. So concentrate for this bit. There's a different object lesson going on here. These chapters, 46 and 47, slow down and give us a kind of expose of idolatry. They show how Babylon's fall is not just God rescuing his people, it's also God showing what happens to idols and people who trust them. They explore the relationship between idolatry and security. They tell us what will ultimately happen to the gods who aren't the God of the Bible and folks who trust them. I mean, Babylon was only the last of a long line of nations who put their trust in other gods, many gods. In fact, so successful and kind of proud were Babylon in their idols, their confidence, that through the Bible, the city of Babylon becomes the kind of main symbol of an anti-God empire right from the kind of Tower of Babel, really early in the Bible, all the way through, if you've ever got to the end of the Bible, Revelation speaks a lot about Babylon the Great, which is probably talking about Rome and other empires like them. But Babylon's the name because they are an object lesson. They're the epitome of an idolatrous, confident culture, a culture that's turned its back or never knew about the God of the Bible and thinks they'll do fine. Thank you very much a city running on power, wealth, military might, lots of gods, but not this god. So then, tonight we'll see what happens to even the most secure of superpowers, even the most intimidating of countries. I guess some of the countries that those people we heard from are in at the moment. What happens to a superpower? if it rejects the God of the Bible for its own alternatives. And here's the thing. I think at the height of Babylon's powers, tonight's sermon from Isaiah 46, 47 would have been very hard to believe. I mean, it looked like all the world was saying Bel and Nebo are the right divine horses to back. But actually the facts today are pretty clear. The shreds of Babylon, the traces of Bel and Nebo, sit in museums in London, elsewhere. They've been conquered. The rest, I guess, of, of the culture is buried under dust in the Middle East. Just artifacts now. But the living God of the Bible, well, here we are, listening to him. And a group like this is replicated all over the world that's what makes this relevant tonight. This is the true story of what happens to idols and, scarily, those who worship them. It does mean it matters, this stuff tonight, whether you're a Christian or not here. Um, all of us worship something. I, may, you know, I know you may not agree with that statement, but that's the way the Bible puts it. We're made as worshippers, and if you don't worship the creator God who made us, it's not that we stop worshipping, 
It's just we turn our worship to other things, created things. We all live for something or someone. We all trust in something or someone as our ultimate bottom line. And tonight will show us the consequences of what we trust. But those of us who are Christians, I don't think we're immune from this diagnosis. Remember, both when it was written and when it started to come true in experience, God's people were struggling to trust him, to trust him alone. They were hedging their bets with the powers around them. They were tempted to back a different horse in life, or at least kind of line up an insurance policy in case Yahweh, the God of the Bible, doesn't come through. We're going to see that we face the same temptation today. So, let's dive into chapter 46. I hope you're persuaded to listen. You'll see an outline on the back of the server sheet. And there are two questions for us in chapter 46. Two questions, and the first is this. Do you carry your God? Do you carry your God? If so, then that's an idol. Or we'll get on to whether God carries you. The difference between idols and the real God is we carry idols, but God can carry us. So, let's see that from these verses. Um, All of chapter 46 is actually just an expansion of verse 20 from chapter 45. Just look across verse 20 of chapter 45. Assemble yourselves, verse 20, and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. That's kind of chapter 46 in a nutshell. They have no knowledge who carry about wooden idols, keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Interestingly enough, in Babylon, they did actually carry their gods around. They had these kind of big annual parades. Huge things, huge celebrations of Bel. And Nebo was his kind of um, son, so he was allowed to tag along sometimes. It was a great kind of show of power. Look, everyone, look at the gods that gave us such superiority. Such imperial might. Look at how Isaiah's satire in verse 1 of chapter 46 points out the absurdity of it all. Verse 1, these huge, powerful-looking statues are actually having to be carried around by animals. And ironically, presumably because they're so big, they're, they're such a heavy burden that they're starting to wear the animals down to the point where Bel and Nebo are bowing Do you see the point? They can't even hold up their own weight, let alone strengthen others. And have a look in verse 2, where they're being carried to. It's not actually a triumphant procession, this one. They're being carried here into captivity. It's a picture of Bel and Nebo's failure to protect Babylon when she fell. And they don't even have the dignity of walking themselves into captivity. Those poor animals have to struggle under the strain. This is how Babylon's gods end up. They don't even carry themselves into captivity. Room 55 of the British Museum. I guess they used a forklift truck to get any gods in there. But actually, it's not just the end of their life. Look on to verse 6. Verse 6, how did these idols ever come to be? Well, verse 6, they lavish, those who lavish gold from the purse, wear silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith 
He makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. Again, the language is carrying. So yeah, those gods of Babylon would have looked pretty intimidating in their huge temples, their highly decorated surrounds. But actually, how did they get there? Well, someone paid for the raw materials. Someone else fashioned it into that shape and someone had to put them there, carry them. What about if they fancy a change of location? Oh, they can't actually move. And so that shows the absurdity of thinking that they could help in a crisis. Do you see that verse 7? End of verse 7. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Do you see the point? If you have to carry your God, if your God is only as strong as you are or you made it to be, well, it's an idol that cannot save you. I wonder if we're willing to realize that about the idols in our culture. I know not many of them are made of gold, but DIY spirituality is very popular around Edinburgh. It takes lots of forms, this man-made construction. It can go like this. I like to think of God as X or Y. My kind of God does this or that, but he would never say that or do that. I like to take the best bits of lots of different religions or worldviews. You see, my kind of God transcends any religious system. Funnily enough, usually that process, the designer God process, ends up producing a slightly bigger version of me. The same priorities, the same preferences, often the same weaknesses and indulgence. But here's the thing, the gods that we design, the ones we customize, that they're brilliantly comfortable to live with because they never make moral demands, they never speak to challenge or disagree with me. They keep stumm. That's wonderful until you need actual help. When we need to be saved, they're silent. It's a painful thing discovering that something you are pinning your hopes on, pinning your life on, pouring your energy into, actually isn't strong enough to bear the weight. Sometimes in life, a a crisis moment shows that. I've said this before, but it it struck me so much. Working um, in the city the day that Lehman Brothers, the bank, suddenly fell, there were employees who'd been told all their lives Look after the firm and it will look after you. Some of them really had made wealth or career an idol. They'd made all sorts of sacrifices of family and friends and time and energy and health even to strengthen, to build the idol, to carry it on their aching shoulders. And suddenly they discover overnight it doesn't have the power to deliver on its promises. can't even carry its own weight. And I guess you could say the same of all sorts of things. Political dynasties. I mean, the day before the revolution, put yourself in the USSR, the day before the Berlin Wall fell, making sacrifices for the cause. Sometimes a crisis shows it, obviously. Sometimes it's only at the end of life, I think, the kind of stark clarity hits us. 
the deathbed or the terminal illness is diagnosed, and it, it brings this, this moment of terrible clarity that, that what we were striving for, whatever it was, the money, the reputation, the status, the achievements, the things we put so much energy into carrying through our life, they're not going to come and save us. They can't come and save us. Of course, for some, it doesn't even occur then. For some, it will only be after death when we meet our actual maker, the real God. And we discover with horror that that imaginary God that I preferred, nowhere to be seen, nowhere to save. Hitting that moment unprepared is so awful that God warns us in advance, lovingly warns us. Maybe one or two here are thinking, actually, I don't need saving. I don't need any God, whether it's the God of the Bible or any of these gods you're talking about, one of my own choosing, because actually I'm perfectly happy. I'm secure. I'm not in a crisis. Well, chapter 47 is going to address that feeling, so please hold the thoughts. But before we get there, we need to ask this second question. This is our second point. Question two. We've seen... Do you carry your God? The second question, the alternative is, does God carry you? You see, Israel, of all people, should know that with the real creator God, it doesn't work that way round. They don't strengthen him, he strengthens them. They don't carry him, ever. He carries them, always. Just look at these wonderful verses, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who've been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. It's emphatic language, isn't it? From first to last, and all the way through, from before you were born, into old age, I will carry, I've made, I'll bear, I'll carry, I'll save. It's the glorious thing about the real God. He's actually able and willing to save, to carry us. If you hear all the way back at the start in chapter 40, this is a reminder of that kind of stuff. Do you remember? How can you say, O Israel, your way is hidden from God? How can you think God can't see me? I'm beyond his help. No, Christian, he's been carrying you from day one. He gives strength to the weary. He lifts you up on eagle's wings. The real God can actually deliver. And so, verse 5, what an absurd thing it would be to compare God to the kind of alternatives out there. Whether that was God's people feeling intimidated by Bell and Nebo parading in front of them, or the powers around us in our culture whether it's the world powers, Russia, China, the EU, the US, the UK governments, whether it's forces of kind of secularism or Islam seeming so strong or the kind of intolerant powers that seem to be grabbing hold of legislation designed to protect equality. Some of those powers may seem intimidating, but God says there are completely different order. They are created things, not the creator. 
They're carried by people, not the carrier. Which is a really good reminder. I don't know if you you are like me. I'm, I'm a worrier. And at a time like now, or a time like then, when it seems like the God of the Bible is marginalized, his people seem weak, well, he doesn't need us to prop him up. It's quite the other way around. As creator, he alone has the strength to carry us through. Why? Well, flick on to verse 8 and 9. Remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind, verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And here's the proof. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. It's the consistent claim through Scripture. There's only one God, the I am. And you can tell he's real because he makes promises and they happen. Let's step back and summarize. Do you see the contrast? Idols are fake gods. They have no strength to save. They have no strength, so we end up carrying them through life. So many in our consumerist culture will say, if you just get the right stuff, or the perfect relationship, or... the right image on social media. Just, just pour your energy into it. That will be what really makes life. And so you carry the burden of that all your life. Invest so much in keeping them looking strong. But in the end, they can't save. We're the ones putting the effort in. Whereas gloriously, the one true God, the sovereign saviour, has the strength and the desire to save people. But what if you're sitting here thinking, do I really need saving? Let's turn back to that question. What if you're thinking, well, actually, I feel perfectly fine in life. So yeah, maybe I'm living for things in this world, but I feel perfectly comfortable, I'm settled, I'm secure. You tell me I've put other things in God's place. You tell me those things can't save me, but I just don't mind. Life is going fine, I'm not looking to be saved. Well, this is where chapter 47 comes in. Sometimes in in talks about idolatry, sometimes you'll hear a preacher say, do you realize you're missing out? I said that yesterday, actually, at the wedding. Do you realize you're missing out? Jesus is better than whatever you're living for. Sometimes we need to say, do you realize you're in danger? It's not just you're missing the best, is that you're in serious danger. And that's what chapter 47 is telling us. So, Babylon. Well, Babylon felt perfectly secure. They thought they were untouchable, and they had good reason to. I mean, they conquered pretty much everyone. They had the money, the power, the might, the education. They had amazing intellectual expertise. They were sitting pretty. They could do what they wanted, and no one could really stop them. Again, that's why Babylon becomes this kind of symbol of human self-confidence of pride. But of course, it's not just them. It's all over human cultures. It's the kind of, I'm perfectly fine without the God of the Bible, thank you very much. The who-needs-him-anyway saviour you keep trying to talk to me about. Well, life isn't working out too badly. 
Chapter 47 points out it will work out badly in the end. The success of the self-confident idolater, the individual or the culture, only lasts for so long. So this is our third point. Point three. Babylon's fall shows that God will humble proud idolaters. And again, we are right to generalise this beyond Babylon all the way to Edinburgh and any other place and time and culture. And that's why I got us to read chapter 2 earlier, our first reading. Not a comfortable reading, that one. But it makes it very clear that God doesn't tolerate idolatry or the pride of humans anywhere, even in his own people. In fact, that's the reason why Judah ended up in Babylon because of their idolatry. The land was full of idols. And so God has this great final day of judgment against all the pride, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, chapter 2 says. Idols shall utterly pass away. Now that great day of universal judgment is still to come, but Babylon is an object lesson. Proof that God doesn't just sit back and ignore proud idolatry forever. And the fall, as it's described here, is actually shocking, isn't it? I don't know if you found the language shocking as it was read. Just look again, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. So this nation, this empire, which was the queen of the known world, well now, it has to get off the throne and sit in the dust, be conquered by other nations. This is imagery, of course, but it's imagery of a kind of a rich and pampered princess suddenly having to work a tough servant job. That's why she's grinding millstones and flour. Having to take off her fine clothes to wade through water as a captive slave girl. It's a kind of humiliation. And to our ears, without knowing the history, that may may sound quite harsh. But actually, when God says in verse 3, he'll take vengeance, the word there is talking about a matching retribution. What he's saying is, I will treat you the way you've treated others. You see, Babylon went round humiliating nations, conquering them. Just have a look at verse 6 of chapter 47. So we're over the page, page 608. Verse 6, where God explains... Why, he, why it was that Babylon conquered Judah and how Babylon went about their business. Verse 6, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hands. How did they operate? You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. They showed no mercy. They will be shown no mercy. Verse 7, perhaps even worse, they said, I shall be a mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. What should they have been taking to heart as they smashed through Judah and Jerusalem and the temple? Well, they should have noticed that Judah lost its security when it turned from the real God to trust in idols. But Babylon is so proud and so confident, 
They thought it could never happen to us. Verse 8, look at how it puts it. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your hearts, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. They thought they were untouchable. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. They thought they could just mercilessly attack God's people. Thought they could totally ignore the creator God of the Bible. They thought they could get away with it. So God announces, Queen Babylon will sit in the dust. That's point three. God will humble proud idolaters. And so the rest of the passage kind of drives that home by saying how all the strengths that led them to feel so proud, so secure, will actually will be stripped away, will count for nothing when God decides to judge. This is our fourth, final point, and we'll go through this quickly. Babylon was too proud to see that there's no lasting security in idols. Just look with me as we go through. They're on the sheet if you miss them. I'll go quite fast. There were lots of things Babylon found security in. We've already seen they, they felt secure in treating others mercilessly. No one was spared. But then verses 8 to 9, there was that confidence in numbers. I am, there's no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. I am too big to fail. Too numerous, too strong to have anyone conquer me. I'll never see my population subdued by another. But of course, verse 9, these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you. Your powerful magic will not stop you ending up in the British Museum and lots of other museums around the world. Or verse 10, yes, you feel secure in your wickedness like lots of governments who don't think there's a higher power above them. They feel they can get away with anything. But verse 11, evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, which you will not be able to atone. You thought you were not accountable to anyone. And so ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. That final phrase, of which you know nothing, actually flags up another factor in, in Babylon's proud sense of security, knowledge. You see, Babylon was, it was a center of learning. Intellectually, it was uh, an amazing place. You can actually watch a video on the British Museum website, I did this this week, describing some of their intellectual accomplishments. Apparently, their number system worked in 60s, and the reason our watches and clocks divide stuff into 60s is because the Greeks nicked that from the Babylonians. Amazing. Amazing accomplishments. And you can also find out loads of stuff they did to try and predict the future. Kind of animal entrails, astrology. And if you want to know where a horoscope comes from, that's where it is. But actually, for all that knowledge, all the universities, so many advisors in verse 13 that they're weary to listen to. A bit like the animals carrying gods. For all that, they can't actually see the future. Ruin shall come upon you, said verse 11, suddenly, of which you know nothing. That's what you see with Daniel in the court of Babylon. Actually, only the real God 
knows what's coming around the corner. And for all their magic, their sorcery, their spirituality, their idolatry, there's just no power to save. Verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. But verse 14, behold, they're like stubble. Fire consumes them. They can't deliver themselves from the power of the flame. End of verse 15, there's no one to save you. You see, for all Babylon's supposed strength, when God decides to call time, there's nothing they can do to protect themselves. All the stuff they put their confidence in, whether it was created gods like Bel, Nebo, created goods like numbers, wealth, wisdom, none of it could actually save them when crisis hits. Because the one true creator God will humble proud idolaters and idols can do nothing to stop it. You see, fundamentally, the story of Babylon is the clash of the I am's. This is what ties the two chapters together. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, So back in chapter 46, verse 9, God said, I am God. 46, verse 9. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me. And then did you hear Babylon say the same thing? 47 verse 8. Babylon, who sits securely, says, I am. There's no one beside me. Verse 10. I am. There's no one besides me. Those two claims can't both be right. There's only one ultimate power, one ultimate I am the true superpower, Babylon came to believe there was no one bigger than them. They put themselves in God's place, but God is having none of it. The Lord has a day against all that's high and lifted up. This is the story of what happens when the real I am meets the pretenders to the throne. Maybe all that still feels a long way from the streets of Edinburgh, but it's really not. Anyone who thinks that the God of the Bible has to fit around some other authority or belief structure, as I guess an increasing number of people in Scotland do, if God has to get with someone else's program, or on a smaller, much more personal scale, if any one of us feels that we can happily choose our own way through life, we can design our own spirituality, we can prioritise our own comfort, we can live in God's world with no thought to him, well, we might not say the exact words, but, but it is a, it's, a, it's a covert assertion that I am. Do you see that? It's, a, it's saying I'm not accountable to the real I am, which must make me the real I am. I can sit secure. I can sit on the throne. There is no other who has the right to tell me what to do. And our creator God, in his love, says, I have a day against the pride of humanity. And so for those of us who are Christians, who know this God of the Bible, let's not hedge our bets with the idols around us. Let's not be intimidated by them or trust them 
Invest in them as an insurance policy. I think it's hard looking back to imagine how intimidating these gods, Bel, Nebo and the rest, would have been. They were intimidating when Babylon came smashing through into Jerusalem and took them into exile. They were intimidating as God's people lived in a culture where the vast crowds said, Nebo, Nebo, Bel, Bel, look at the strength. I'm sure they laughed at the God of Israel as a pathetic, out-of-date, religious figment of imagination. Bel and Nebo could be seen and touched, so prominent being paraded around. But Isaiah says to us, keep trusting the one true I am, because only he can carry us. will end up carrying any alternative and he won't put up with competition. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks truth to us. And we know you speak it in love. We thank you that you carry us all through life and beyond the grave. And we pray you would help us to trust in you and not be scared or tempted by those who claim to be stronger than you. In Jesus' name, amen.